Jackie Jones and welcome to my podcast, Living Life Being Human, the number one podcast for anxiety, stress and mental health support. Don't forget to click subscribe to be notified of my latest podcast episodes. And if you get any value from this podcast, please support me by leaving a review. It really does help me out and it motivates me to keep making these podcasts. You can connect with me on social media at Jackie Jones Coaching or you can subscribe to my YouTube channel to get weekly videos all around anxiety, stress and mental health. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So, Welcome to the next episode of the Living Life Being Human podcast and I've got a wonderful guest, Dr. Damien. Um, I've never had a doctor on before, so I'm, I'm very honoured. Um, Dr. Damien Wilde, um, and I'm going to read a little bit about his bio, and then we'll maybe talk about how we got to meet each other. So, um, call me, call me. <clears throat> I've said before, Jackie, but just call me Damien. Damien. Um, okay. I quite like I, Dr. I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you call me whatever you like, but I, I, I think usually the doctor title only goes on sort of formal work letters and anyone in meet, whether it be a client, you know, professional, uh, I always say, you know, let's put down this kind of power kind of dynamic and just, just call me Damien. Okay. Damien. I quite, I, I do like Dr. D though. That, that makes you enter. <laughs> so um, after completing a psychology degree, Damien qualified as a primary school teacher and having an interest in clinical psychology, he gained practical experience in a children's home as a co-worker and also in positions such as assistant psychologist and psychological well-being practitioner in the child and adolescent psychology services. There's lots of big words in here and I'm, I'm, I'm not a big word person. After completing a clinical psychology doctorate, Damien worked as a clinical psychologist in CAMS, which he absolutely loved. He now works as a psychotherapy service and his main passion is working therapeutically with people on a one-to-one -one basis, providing a safe, containing, exploratory space. I love that. I love the way that's phrased. Damien works psychodynamically, but integratively where needed. And Damien enjoys, these are the big words that get me, neuropsychological assessment, teaching, research and supervision, particularly of trainee clinical psychologists, which I think you touched on is one of your passions in supporting other trainees and how to get there and all those sort of things and Damien is a committee member of the division of clinical psychology the DCP the northwest branch helping to promote psychology locally wow what what a bio that is yeah just to add a tiny bit there I've I'm not doing the DCP uh, committee work at the moment I did previously um, but sometimes, you know, <clears throat> you know what it's like, you have to kind of weigh things up and look at your time commitments. Yeah. So that's, that's not something they're doing currently, but, but the rest of it, yes, accurate. Yeah. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting when I read all this is that mine and your career paths are quite similar, only yours was at yeah. a much more academic level than what mine was. So, and I, I'm, interested to know more about the clinical psychologist side of things um as opposed to me being a psychotherapist in private practice what's the yeah difference? i mean i think there's a lot of overlap in the work that we do um because i mean the thing is with clinical psychologists is 
often people can have different sort of areas of specialism. So you might get some clinical psychologists who do purely research-based jobs. Yeah. Um, you can work in a lot of diff- you know, different areas. You know, a colleague of mine uh, used to be president of BPS. He used to work for the Ministry of Defence. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, some people work uh, sort of consultancy-based jobs, you know, giving advice to sort of public health bodies. So clinical psychologists can be involved with sort of policy, health policy. Um, you can work for mental health services or, you know, could be based in schools. Some work sort of the NHS, some work in private practice. So I, I think probably, I mean, me personally, sort of area, you touched upon it before, that I specialise in is psychodynamic psychotherapy. So quite a large part of the work I've done privately and for the NHS has been psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's the kind of main kind of central bit of where I'm each job is obviously if someone comes to a service I'm working in or someone comes to you they'll often say I'm struggling Um, things have happened to me you know my my needs are not being met can you help me to get my needs met and 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 that's the bit which is which is similar I think when we're training sort of as well as the clinical side of things you know we've got various clinical competencies to meet because we have to carry out research as well so there are kind of academic and research elements to what we do but they're not just there in case you might purely work in a research job or you carry out research as part of your job they like us to sort of well we were training what's called the scientist practitioner model so if we've got the research skills as well, say, for example, someone gives us a, a research paper saying, oh, this new therapy is really effective for people who've experienced trauma. Yeah. We've then got the scientific critique skills to be able to analyze the research and say, well, is, is this research good quality? And so ensuring that we're working from a good sort of scientific evidence base. But I, I think this balance to that isn't, I don't know what your views on this are, but I think the evidence base is critically important and working scientifically. But I also think there's a balance to be had because I remember early on in my career when I was an assistant psychologist, supervisor said to me, a clinical psychologist, you can't always take your manual into a room with a client. True. You know, just because the RCT said this, you know? Yeah. So what we got to remember, I mean, a very wise supervisor of mine who's a psychoanalyst, during my clinical psychology doctorate said to me, you can't box humans. 100%. I love whoever that was. Yeah, we're all unique. She, she said that. And the other thing she said to me was, Damien, humans are complex. Yeah. I can remember on my training, um, they would say, you know, when somebody presents with this, then it's because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, yeah, I've got that. And they said, but it can also be because of A, B, and C, and E, F, D. And it's like, oh, no, what's all that about? I- I'm quite a logical person. I like a, a structure to follow. And I soon learned that, yeah. that that's not going to serve me well. 
So it's okay to have a fundamental, you know, idea, but I'm one of those people that constantly reassess and reevaluate. I've had clients yeah. that come for one subject and, you know, six months in, suddenly they spring something else on you that actually, you know, is, is maybe more important. So for me, I, I'm one of those people that always say it's the therapeutic relationship that matters as opposed to the modality that is being used in the room. I'm not precious about transactional analysis. You know, I, I'm open to learning lots of different approaches. Yeah, no, I think it's such a funny good point, Jackie. You know, there's a lot of research to say that actually uh, an essential fundamental element of, you know, psychotherapy and working psychologically is that kind of therapeutic relationship because it's a very, very special relationship. I mean, I often, sometimes people who don't work in psychology and psychotherapy will say to me, oh, well, what's it like, you know, work, working with clients? And I'll say, you know what? I can honestly say I really like all the clients that I work with and the relationships are incredibly special because I think obviously you need to have been trained properly. You need to be working in sound kind of psychological ways, yeah. but also what you've got to model actually is that this is a safe, trustworthy, non-judgmental relationship, right? And not only do we end up being, you know, special to them, but they end up being special to us. And as well as the psychological work that we do, you know, sometimes, you know, you kind of share sort of warm, humorous moments together, yeah. you know? Which and they go out. When we're talking about quite yeah. deep traumatic events that we can still smile and see the humorous side of things sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and then they go away thinking, okay, I, mat I matter to Damien or, you know, I matter to Jackie. Yeah. And, and and maybe they don't get that elsewhere in their life where they've not mattered to people. Yes. You know? uh, uh, and the thing is, as well, it's done in a very genuine way. It's not like I never say things for the sake of it, you know, when I'm with a client. Anything that I say is always genuine. Yeah, yeah. And I think that kind of shocks some people, you know, that... I, I started way, way years ago doing person-centered counseling. And one of the things that really stuck me with that was that I had to leave myself to a certain extent outside the therapy room door. And I really struggled with that. I was like, yeah, that's, that's not how I want to, to work with people. You know, I bring myself in the room as well. And sometimes I get emotional with clients. Sometimes if it's relevant, I will share personal experiences with the client. Yeah. Yeah. to normalize you know certain things not to take away from what they're experiencing but to kind of let them know that it's okay yeah that that's that's actually been a, a topic of debate recently in sort of psychology circles about how much your own experiences you you, you know you you bring into this um and, and i know that there's a really good uh, organization called integrate mental health which is run by two fantastic clinical psychologists, um, Natalie and Anna. And their organization is about helping support mental health professionals who've had their own sort of 
personal struggles sort of you know emotionally and psychologically and actually that there's work around reducing stigma around that yeah ensuring that people get good support and actually that people's own experiences should be valued and actually can sort of work well with the work that you do because because I know I, I know what you mean where you were saying I think you know at times we need to be sort of boundaried and think about that but it's it's your own sort of judgment isn't it yeah if a client yeah. is I, I I from my experience I think it can be done in a, in a couple of ways sometimes if a client's talking about a difficult experience that they've had of course I'm thinking about okay how can we understand this psychologically and, and work with it but if you've experienced it yourself and you know what works well to get through that you might say something without actually saying oh well, actually I went through this yeah right and say well what could be really help I, I, it sounds like you know you can do a little bit around the understanding around it and say actually what might help is this yeah. um yeah. Th there might be times when it is okay as well to say well actually you know I once had a struggle with this because I mean when I worked in CAMS you know I was working with young people who sometimes be anxious about would they get enough GCSEs and the pressure on them and sometimes perfectionism will be creeping in and there'd be all these different dynamics and sometimes I'd say well you know what I started off with two GCSEs you know yeah um and, you know, I was disappointed, but I built up and I got to where I wanted to get to. So that, I suppose, is an example where I brought in a personal experience. I, I think there's a balance to be had with it, because when we've had this debate, I've always said to people, bring it in where needed, use your judgment. But remember, it's the other person's space. 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. It it's kind of like for me the, the only way that I can equate it is you know being a parent and having had children I would much rather have a midwife that's gone through the process than have somebody that's never given birth to a child there's a, there's a certain amount of understanding and empathy that goes along with being you know on that journey together and I always see yeah, I mean the fundamentals with transactional analysis is I'm okay you're okay I haven't got all the answers in that room. It's an exploratory thing for me when we're in there together. And, you know, we're, we're both on the same level on the journey together, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it, it is the sort of journey and a process. Um, and I think what everyone brings in is human experience. Yeah. Because um, and, and, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that... Um, you know, someone has to have experienced like a, a major kind of, sometimes we, we think about how we word these things or a major kind of mental health difficulty or, or a struggle or what, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Because each and every day, all of us go through kind of relational, societal kind of pressures and experiences. And, and of course, like, I think, in our job I think we do bring some of our own personality into it I noticed that at an early age when I was an assistant psychologist and trying to gain a place on the job trip and yes I talk about being professional and 
working ethically and being boundary. But I also thought, you know what? I bring a little bit of my own personality into the job, particularly when I was working in camps. Yes. Yeah. I, I think one of the biggest skills that we have in our job is engagement skills, right? And I, I remember during the doctorate, we'd always get, after each placement, we'd always get commented on, on different areas like formulation skills, intervention skills. And I'd often have things to work on, but probably my best comments were on engagement skills. And, and I think you've got to be able to relate to different people. And part of that was part of my upbringing, where, you know, wherever we were taught, whether it be someone who lived in a very tiny house, you know, or a big house, you know, wherever we were taught, we were taught to be comfortable and polite and, and respect people and engage with them on, on, you know, whatever level or whatever situation that it was. And I took that into my work. And so, you know, sometimes like in CAMS or other services, you might get someone who quietly comes in who, who doesn't say anything or, you know, like sometimes working in CAMS, you, you get, you know, the young person, the parents, maybe the siblings that turn up and you, you got like, five people in a room oh, in and the, the room. siblings the siblings are running around the room and, and you're trying to speak to the young person and the parents uh, like i remember once where like the young person and the parents were getting distracted by the two siblings so i sort of uh, i can make quite good paper airplanes and i quickly <laughs> grabbed some paper made some paper airplanes give them to siblings and that kept them entertained for sort of <laughs> Half an Multitasking. hour. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's where your school teacher bit came into its own. So you, you yeah, oh no. You you touched a little bit on it there about how we work ethically. Um and the, we met online. I'm gonna say it not on a dating agency, it was on a, a, a Facebook group, and we were in there looking at maybe unregulated practitioners and yeah. whether it's because of the pandemic and what we're going through that there's an awful lot of people claiming certain things and for me my qualification is really important to me not necessarily because I can say oh I've got this qualification but there's, yeah. there's a certain level of trust that goes along with that Having said that, I've never actually been asked by any clients to see, you know, my qualifications or ask me, am I a qualified practitioner, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I think, I suppose a couple of points you're touching upon there is that if somebody says, oh, you know, I'm a psychologist, I'm a psychotherapist, I'm a mental health practitioner, or you know, I'm a life coach or whatever it is, right? I think people in vulnerable situations, there can be an expectation of like, oh, oh, you know, um, Bob, oh yeah, well, look, you know, he says he's he can provide this, he's good at that. I think sometimes people don't necessarily think about asking those questions. It's absolutely fine to ask those questions. I mean, you're right, it's rare, but I have been asked before. I think someone wanted one person in one service once asked me all my qualifications, you know, where I trained and 
all of those types of questions. And people are absolutely have the right to know that. Maybe yeah. I think in certain services, like if you you know if you're working for the NHS, they know you've been through a rigorous DBS check. Yeah. Right? They know that you'll be aligned to a regulatory body, right? So maybe that gives them a certain amount of confidence that actually you are properly qualified, you're properly monitored, et cetera, et cetera, right? But I think, you know, you know we met in terms of, I suppose, you know, the, the group we're involved with is around unregulated practitioners. You might advertise online a lot and put out their kind of sort of claims, which, you know, might entice vulnerable people in and yeah. then they pay out lots of money and then they don't get what they were promised. But then there's nowhere for them to, to complain because these independent practitioners are not aligned to a regulatory body, yeah. right? And, and I also sort of agree with one of your other points about saying actually, you know, it's not about necessarily saying, oh, I've got these qualifications, but probably to you, like to me personally, like my training period was incredibly important and special to me. Yeah. You know, the journey to get there, yeah. you know, and, and I sent you the article that I wrote, didn't it, which I've given out to a lot of aspiring psychologists. Uh, and actually the doctorate itself is very special to me. So it's, you know, it's it's the per it's got personal meanings to us, doesn't it? In terms of what what you've achieved, what I've achieved, what different people have achieved. Yeah. But so, and I suppose the other point is you're saying about working ethically, right? We know that through our training, but also maybe our personal background, is that we're there to help people, right? Yeah. We work ethically, that we show integrity. You know, that we work hard, we do things properly, we communicate properly, we treat people with respect, yeah. right? And that we're actually, the other important point, I've had this conversation with a few people recently, is actually, you're open to criticism. Because I know when I work with people, I always say to people, right, if there's ever a point in a session where you think it's not working for me or you didn't like something I've said, Please put it forward. And I foster this space yeah. where people feel comfortable. And I'll give you an example. It was in my last job. I was working with a person. And one session, you know, she said to me, oh, look, some things we did last week, it, it annoyed me a bit and, and it, it wasn't helpful. And rather than me feeling criticised or upset by it, I was really pleased that she'd actually brought that to session. We reflected upon it, we worked through it, and then we ended up going on, you know, to do a really good piece of work and yeah. discharge with a really good outcome. And actually, if something doesn't feel quite right for a client to say, hey, you know what, I'm not feeling any change, or yeah. I feel worse, yeah. is that a good ethical practitioner will actually say, hey, look, you know, I'm really glad you raised that. It's really important to you you're able to say what you feel because see that going to me back, is what trust you have built up with that client that they felt comfortable and able to actually bring that up in the session that's that speaks volumes to me they didn't just disappear they felt something and brought it back in the next session which to me is exactly how it should be yeah and if you, if you go back to 
something fundamental that I often say to clients when I start working with them. I've got this um, basic right sheet, okay? Now, it might sound simple to some people, right? But um, my supervisor in my last job, he was brilliant, mate. Absolutely brilliant, um, mate. She gave me the sheet and she said, look, when you're working with some people, they're not aware of basic human rights. And, and the, one, the, the one at the top says, um, you have a right to express how you feel, mm -hmm. right? And some people where they've been blocked or shouted down or abused or emotionally neglected often are like, oh, well, I, I can say, oh, I feel, is that okay? Right. And so it comes back to the point I was making there about if someone's like, oh, hey, you know, I feel uncomfortable in, in therapy or whatever type of intervention it is, they're able to express how they feel in and out of the room. That should be more than that should be okay. I know we came together because you know, there were certain practitioners out there when they received criticism is that, you know, then they're actually being, you know, uh, you know, verbally or attacked from a, a, a text sort of uh, electronic perspective and that that's wrong and that needs to be sort of called called out and i think we might see see more of this coming up because there's a bbc journalist um I won't, I won't say kind of who but he's in the middle of making a tv documentary and this is about various uh, unregulated practitioners and it came about because he himself uh, uh, sought private help and felt worse. Uh, and as a journalist himself, and, and then actually has gone on, he's in the middle of making this program. And he interviews various people, um, one of whom I put forward who'd used uh, you know, a, a method from, from, from someone who, who's popped up in the group as you know, sort of being a little unscrupulous so i think this word the bbc journalist will highlight the fact that unregulated independent practitioner that area is something that needs to be worked on and maybe the government needs to look at this yeah 100 percent. i think everything that you've said is so valid and particularly you know about being able to take criticism and be open to criticism and the opposite of that is how powerful it is to just provide a safe space for somebody. I'm not sure how your training was, but my training, it, you know, part of it was I had to undergo personal therapy for four years while I was doing my training. I went into my training, think I was absolutely fine. Little did I know six months in, oh, wow, look at all this baggage I've got. But one of the things that will always stick in my mind was going to see a therapist. And I said to him, probably, 10 15 minutes in is it okay if i just nip to the toilet and he said yes of course you don't need to nip you can take all the time you need and even now it makes me emotional you know part of my upbringing was that everything needed to be done quickly and i couldn't take time or space for me it was always you know meeting other people's needs and not necessarily looking after myself and for somebody that i'd only just met to point that out to me, I, I will take that to my grave. That's how, you know, important having a safe space to 
to share, to give and to receive things is so important. Yeah, and you, you were seeking permission as well to go. Yeah, that's me all over. <laughs> and I think that's one uh, of the things that I take into the room. You know, I've, I've got my driver behaviours because of my upbringing. You know, we, we all develop a certain personality because of the events that we go through in our lives. That's being a human being and it's okay. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, and I think just want to sort of uh, go through a couple of points you made. I think, yeah, I think um, understandable reactions are important because, I mean, I, I don't use diagnosis in my job and, and sort of I'm against use of psychiatric diagnosis in understanding emotional and psychological distress. But it just made me think of that then because... Um, and sometimes we'll get accused of saying, oh, well, oh, you're saying that this is a normal experience or, and that's not what we're saying at all. I mean, people we see are going through some horrendous experiences, absolutely horrific, this debilitating, this massively impacting upon their quality of life. Some people who, who are struggling to function at the most basic level. Yeah. <clears throat> but I suppose what you're talking about there is, if you have certain human and relational experiences, if you're treated badly, if your psychological needs are not met, you will struggle. Yeah. But the, there's a link. There's a link there. You know, like okay, you were in that relationship, or this was neglected in your childhood. Because one of the, sometimes I'll ask questions during assessment, and one question which all pretty much always gets a no is, I'll say, when you were younger. Did you have anyone to take your feelings to when maybe, you know, something difficult or frustrating or sad had happened? And virtually everyone says no, right? So if you think about, you know, got young kids in and amongst my family circle, if they fall over and slightly graze their knee, it's like a, you know, a massive disaster, isn't it? Yeah. Right? So, so imagine someone who's getting uh, abused in some way or... or what I was touching upon there is emotionally neglected. So, you know, they have a horrible day at school. They don't have someone to go to and say, hey, I feel really sad. This, you know, I, I, this happened, you know, or I was shouted at uh, or, or I fell out with a friend. And so what they're doing is then is it's all getting internalized, right? And that impacts people impacts upon people when they're adults yeah. right so, so it goes back to my you know um my, these are my one of my previous supervisors the psychoanalyst who said you know um humans are complex um but but yeah I, I think it's important to say well that didn't happen because you've got a disorder right actually that happened because you were treated badly or you know you felt threatened in that situation or you had a lack of opportunities yeah right um but just the other couple of things i just wanted to touch upon that you mentioned as well as you know about having a space and i know not just uh, you know i read one of the articles that i sent you is about creating spaces for yourself safe spaces yeah one space yeah. could be the therapy room i mean i think the therapy rooms it's important to talk to family and friends, and that's essential if, if you have them. But it's a different space because, you know, the doorbell doesn't go, the phone doesn't go, it's non-judgmental. 
you can take anything you want to take there, right? It's a different space. Sometimes people will tell me things that they don't even tell their husband or wife, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, but also other spaces are important. Like tonight I go to Pilates. That's such an important space for me. I go to the nature reserve and beach for walk. That's a space for me. I mean, one thing during clinical psychology training that you did a huge amount about was, you know, self-care, yeah. you know, uh, 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 and it wasn't in a token way it wasn't in you know nowadays some people say oh it's a bit fashionable isn't it it was really genuine in terms of how they did it although I do remember in first year early on when we didn't have too much work and so we sort of worked clinically three days a week and we were at university two days and I remember one Friday afternoon we had early on we had um we had sort of study research time Friday afternoon and one of the girls <laughs> One of the girls says, right, I'm off for a massage, self-care. That's it, um, yeah. <laughs> um, really actually, I mean, I went for a massage and facial yesterday, and I actually think that's really good for physical and mental health. It's, yeah. it's a space of my own, a quiet space, yeah. you know, where someone's looking after me. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just finally, just on, on the the things that you were talking about before I wanted to touch upon is about personal therapy for um, uh, mental health professionals, because I know in certain um, professional kind of roles, it is mandatory. Like, you know, in Cam's I shared an office with a, a brilliant practitioner, Emma, trainee, um, child psychotherapist. And I think she was going four times a week wow <laughs> um mandatory like often in counseling psychotherapy counseling psychology training it's mandatory um in clinical psychology interestingly it isn't now i've raised this within the profession before and actually said i think it should be mandatory um because i know that i'm better at my job because you spot nuances in your own therapy that I think otherwise you just wouldn't spot, right? Now, we didn't have to go, we, we were told about it. Interestingly, I, when I was working with Elisa, my supervisor, she said, look, you know, Damien, you're a very good therapist, but you want to be fantastic. You've got to go and have your own therapy. So she got me a recommendation. She said, right, okay, my supervisor's recommended this person, Maury. She said, and I trust my supervisor with my life. Yeah. So, so I said, well, that's a good enough recommendation for me. So my actual first session was the last day of my doc, the, the day the doctorate finished. So everyone's joking, saying, oh, you don't like endings. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it was a brilliant, brilliant space. And then I moved um, back up north because I was down in Coventry. And... I remember thinking, right, I want to find someone new. And then Emma recommended someone who was local. She met her at a conference or something, Julie, psychodynamic psychotherapist. And I went for a sort of an initial kind of appointment. And I went away, but I didn't return to start therapy with Julie until I must have been about maybe four or six months later. And do you know what stopped me? Is because I had a really good relationship with Maureen. I found it hard about 
the prospect of seeing someone new. And what that showed to me, is, <clears throat> I don't know if you've seen it in services where, say if someone's leaving or, you know, um, or various other factors, oh, we'll just get them another therapist, it's fine. Actually, changing therapists can be quite difficult. And I got a bit of insight into personally how that felt. Now, then I did return to see Julian. I've been going to see it for years now. Great space. In fact, it's this afternoon, every Thursday. Really? Going there. And yeah, sometimes I talk about great things that happen, but also people irritate me or treat me badly. I go in there and I know she gets it. Yeah. And I'm talking about not just something she says verbally, sometimes just the facial expressions. She'll give away a facial expression, which communicates to me, that person was a disgrace. And I just like it. Like, I love it if I think she gets it. Yeah. I really like it. See, I, I refer to that as, as being truly seen and heard you know when the yeah. whole body is saying i get it i i yeah you don't need the words i get it <laughs> well you want to be i mean that's essential thing it's not just listening it's being heard and that the part of that being heard is being understood and it's a core human need to feel understood yeah yeah and you touched on it a little bit there so may, maybe just to finish off we can we can have a, a little chat around labels i'm an ex-foster carer and uh, yeah i'm going to generalize here but all of the children came with a label of one description you know one particular lad had every initial under the sun put on him um diagnosis of this that and the other he was on ritalin when he came he was diagnosed with adhd and oppositional defiance disorder you name it this kid had got it thrown at him um and one of the things i did as a, a foster carer was I needed to know the medical facts. I needed to know if they had any allergies, if they had any, you know, issues with the yeah. health or anything like that. The rest of it and how other foster carers interpreted them. I never read it because I wanted to take those kids on face value when they came in. So as long as I could meet the medical needs, you know, and, and obviously, you know, all that sort of stuff, I wanted to start our relationship off with a clean slate. And that always served me well. I didn't need to know the labels that they'd got. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes it worked and sometimes it backfired, to be fair. But I, I didn't change my opinion on these kids. Do you, do you know what it reminded me of instantly when you were talking that about, I'll go back to her again, Lisa. So she had quite an influence on how I practice and how I then went to further develop in terms of working psychodynamically in the psychotherapy um, sort of practice sense. Um, she said to me once in terms of when sort of seeing new clients, she said, unless there's a specific risk element being highlighted to me by the referrer, yeah. I don't read any notes. I, I don't read any notes. Wow. And that actually, I took that and I don't, so in work, if I get a referral, I, what often people do is they'll get a referral, they'll go onto the electronic system. So I'm talking, say, NHS or yeah. maybe other yeah. private practices have their own electronic system. Yeah. There'll be reams of letters, there'll be reams of notes, and they'll go meet the lot. I don't do it. Wow. And I actually say to people, 
at the start of the assessment, I'll explain, I've not read your notes, so I'll explain why and I'll say, I don't want to read or hear what other people have said about you. I want to hear it from you. Yeah. Okay. So powerful. Now, and, yeah. I mean, at that point, you've got to be delicate with it because sometimes people are sick, are sick of seeing too many people because they might have seen GP. Yeah. They might have gone to a single point of access kind of appointment. They might have been um, assessed by you know, a nurse practitioner. So there's sometimes going to be other, oh, I've got to tell my story again. And I totally get that. And that's where I was going before about not changing therapists and having relational consistency. Yes. The person who knows you, who knows your stuff, who knows who, who, who's who in your life. And you know, when you mention a person like, oh, oh yeah, that, that's your uncle. Or, oh, you know, oh, that, that's your friend. That's your friend that you always go out to dinner with on, you know, on, on a Tuesday. Um, but I think, there is that element of what you were saying there as well, going on a clean slate in terms of understanding the person who's in front of you, not like what someone else has said, well, you know, this, this child or this adult, you know, um, you know, exhibits like, you know, challenging behavior and, and they sometimes, you know, get annoyed by this or that. I'm like, well, actually I'd rather ask them myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as a foster care, I was a foster carer for 13 years and it was a roller coaster. You know, I, I can remember one particular lad that came and he was only in the house for two hours before he ran off. And I can remember we had to phone the police and go through all the procedures and everything. And this police officer was asking me what colour his eyes were. And I was like, I haven't got a flipping clue. He was only here for two hours. So, you know, but he came back and that was his thing. That's what he did when things got too much for him. He ran off and we made a deal that I'm not going to confine you. I'm not going to keep you here, but I need to know that you're safe when you go. Yeah. And, we, you know, we had a standing joke. I used to take a pretend to take a photograph of him and he'd say, what are you doing that for? I said, so I can identify you and I can tell the police what you're wearing. Are you going to come back tonight? Yes, I'm coming back. And even when things are really heavy and stressful you know you can still connect on a level of some sort with with everybody i think yeah it is that connection yeah the, the connection is important and i think going back to your just slightly earlier point about kind of what some people might view as labels um it's a delicate area because of course there will be some people uh, out there who say you know what um i received a diagnosis it's been really helpful. Yeah. You know, um, it gave me some understanding. Um, it, it led to me receiving the, the, the correct intervention. Yeah. And then so, of course, I absolutely acknowledge that there are some people who will say it's helpful and it can be helpful for certain system organizational perspectives. And <clears throat> another thing, um, <clears throat> but I also think it's important to acknowledge actually that for some people it does harm, okay? Um, and I don't know, for example, you know, you might get people, you were talking about, you know, you've done a lot of fostering, right? Which is really admirable. And, you know, you'll have been important to those people, you know, um, and they'll look back and think, you know, Jackie cared, you know? One of so them got to any... the door the other day. I haven't seen him for over 10 years. And he said, I was just Aww. driving past and I couldn't not call. And I, was like, oh. I thought it was the Amazon man at first, and I just looked up and I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, he does. Yeah. I've still yeah. got a piece of them in me too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He held you in mind, you held him in mind. So you you were important. But we know often, I touched upon it before, often, not always, okay? Sometimes it can be to do with other reasons. But, you know, a lot of the time it can be to do with kind of difficulties which are occurring in childhood. And you will have seen the devastation, right, through foster caring. If someone is neglected or abused or treated badly in some kind of an affected, I mean, in terms of, I don't know if you've read it, but a good book recommendation for people is a book called Why Love Matters. So I don't know if I'm pronouncing the surname correctly, but Sue Gerdhart. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was looking up there so, because I usually have it rattling around somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've got a copy. But in there, it, it goes, it's quite a big read, but it goes into detail about, okay, if a baby's needs are not met and they're not made to feel safe and secure and they're nurtured and they're developed in the correct way, then actually these are the problems that will happen in childhood and these are the problems that will happen later on in adulthood there is an explanation okay now for example if someone has been say sexually abused as a child and later on in adulthood they're displaying you know they're feeling really emotionally and psychologically distressed and they're displaying what others might deem as erratic behaviors right is it acceptable to say to them you have a personality disorder you know I personally think it's quite insulting. Yeah. Um, and the yeah. thing is, you've got to question whose benefit is given the diagnosis for? Because in my entire career, only one client has ever said to me, can you give me a diagnosis? Right? Now, I had to say I'm not diagnostically trained, so I can't do that. Right? But I don't think clients in the main come in saying, I, yeah, I want a diagnosis. It's often given by the professional involved, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, all you've got is like, I mean, if, for example, you know, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, if you Google that, does that give you a when a set of symptoms come up? Does that give you an understanding of Bob or Sarah? Right? Does it tell you about Bob and Sarah's life? No, it doesn't. So that's where we talked before about having that exploratory space in therapy, right? And then as clinical psychologists, we'll use some formulation. So that's, you know, as I'm sure you know, is just kind of taking into account all the things that happen in the person's life, not just the past, but present, because sometimes people can come in and say, oh, you know what? The police are down our street all the time, got people throwing bricks through the window. That sort of pressure is gonna make people feel psychologically uncomfortable and, and lead to a lot of distress. So you have to take all the, of course, biology absolutely plays a part in it and it's part of it, okay? We know that through like books like Why Love Matters and various research is the brain does change if people are neglected and abused in certain ways in childhood okay so for me it's like 
rather than giving you know leaflets saying well you've got this disorder and these are the symptoms what what does that tell a person i also think that it can i've seen it halt recovery where people are like well i've got this disease I'm, I'm stuck like this you know and actually or sometimes people will say well that happened on friday night but it was my such a disorder so so actually you know it's about i'm interested in the person you know you know it's oh jack oh you know what, what what's jack struggle with what what does jack like what what are the positive things you know actually the person it comes back to the person and the life that they have around them not 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 stamping them with a label and also what what is then aligned with that is you touched upon it before about some of the children you saw were, were giving Ritalin and of course psychotropic medication for some people is absolutely vital and it absolutely has its place yeah but I think I think what we see is an over-reliance upon any kind of problem you know some people's go-to is a client comes and say oh this has happened or I'm feeling like this or I'm getting intrusive thoughts or okay we'll, we'll give you this and we'll give you that for that next thing you know people are on several medications and this is kind of polypharmacy approach polypharmacy approach might be useful for some people but then you know you know what the regular thing I hear is you know and maybe do an assessment of oh do you, do you take any medications well well they give me this it didn't work so the other dose but that didn't work so they gave me this one it didn't work and then the other dose it didn't work so then they gave me this one it didn't work the other dose it didn't work so now I'm this one is it helpful uh, yeah. no <laughs> uh, I, 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 actually I'd like to come off it but I feel too scared to say anything and there's like the power dynamic because of course I think the thing is as well I touched upon this earlier about title the, the difference is is often like psychotherapists clinical psychology they do have the title of doctor is they're virtually always called by the first name by clients now medics I often hear clients call them doctor yeah. so does it create this kind of sort of power but it's just one element really I'm not saying it's a significant element but um so the, I mean the other thing as well that clinical psychologists use a group of sort of uh, clinical psychologists um service users if that's an okay term to use I know sometimes people yeah for using yeah. kind of different terms um put together a five-year project and it's called the power threat meaning framework Wow. Um, so that was really um, just to try and put forward a framework, um, an alternative way to understand distress, um, rather than say solely relying upon psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah. So I mean, it, it looks at people will be able to find summary and overviews online of that, but you know, it looks at in terms of you know, sort of key elements like you know, the role of power in people's lives and, and, and you know, the, the, role, the role that threat plays. Yeah. So it's, I suppose, trying to ensure that all the correct elements and factors and life experiences are took into account and understood. Yeah. Mark, Mark yeah. That, 
that's my one success story in life I think is is probably one of the first kids that we looked after that had the diagnosis of ADHD and was on Ritalin um he he came from a very chaotic background as well as the being you know certain other things that went on and with the help of CAMS we got him off his Ritalin and officially undiagnosed nothing he didn't need to be on it and the only way we could do it because he started to be reliant on it he if he didn't you know say his medication was working then he would play up his behavior if he forgot to take it or if something happened or whatever he would blame not having it for his behavior so omega fish oil tablets were very similar to his is is Ritalin tablets. So under the you know advisory of CAMS, we started to reduce the amount slowly over time and replace them with Omega fish oil. And there was no change in his behavior whatsoever. And when we eventually yeah. told him that, you know, you're not actually on it anymore. Your disbehavior is you, a hundred percent you. You don't need it. And he was with us for nine years. It, it, he's, he's a dad now, he's got two kids. It's it's a wonderful. I, I think the thing is, nobody denies that, say, like, so, so for, for example, if a child is, is displaying what others might deem as, like, quite extreme behaviours, no, no one, uh, you know, sometimes will be accused of denying the seriousness of um, what's going on for a person. Yeah. We're not, we're not denying that. And obviously when you had children come to you, you could say, actually, this is a problem. That's quite problematic. That's upsetting for them. That's a struggle for them. But I suppose what you were doing there is kind of formulating and saying, all of those kind of, um, I don't want to use the kind of word symptoms because it's, it's quite metal, but all those kind of presentations are there. Yes, I totally agree. What I think it's to do with other factors, and I don't think it's say you know ADHD. I think what what's what he's displaying can be explained due to things that have happened in his past yeah. or things that are happening currently, right? Yeah. And, and, and the behaviour was him trying to communicate something to us. Yeah. It wasn't personal. Yes, it was aimed at me, but I knew it wasn't personal. He just didn't know how to let me know what was going on for him. Yeah, I think you touch upon a key point now. And people will often talk about it more so with children, but you could argue it, this happens with adults. It's often people have something they want to communicate. You could feel distressed in some way, something internal is occurring. Yeah. And they might not quite have the words or the understanding to communicate it. So, what can you can see happen is, you know, when I was a teacher, you might. You know, sometimes you know, the reports has got such a child through a chair, you know, in class, and then it's not helpful to kind of say, oh, well, you know, oh, well, maybe he's got conduct disorder, you know, and that's why he threw the chair. Actually, it might be that that child had an awful couple of days at home and they had no one to take the feelings to, and it built up to the level where they exploded, yeah. you know. Um, so I think that's important. The, the other thing I just wanted to touch upon is about as well, I think sounded like you sort of touched upon with the person you were, maybe there was a bit of placebo effect going on with the medication. I know there's a psychiatrist, pro- Professor Joanna Moncrieff, who's published a lot of research on um, antidepressant medication. 
And a lot of the research has shown that actually it's no more effective than placebo. Um, so, so I think, and then you start to think about, you know, the amount of money that's spent on psychotropic medication. Could it be used better elsewhere? Uh, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, part of it, not all of it, obviously, but often people will say things like, well, no, look, this works and this does work. And I, I, I always say to people, look, it can be that certain things might not work as well. Because if you go years back to, you know, Bedlam. Yes, yeah. yeah. So in Bedlam, the uh, intervention of choice for people with uh, mental health distress was purging. And we'll, we'll, you know, so, so maybe at that time people were saying, oh, that, that, that's, that's a really cool thing to do. No, no, it really works. Like, you know, well, they're not telling to purge. They're not pe telling people to purge now, are they? Oh, thank goodness. So, <laughs> <laughs> so my point is things can be wrong, you know. There's this real kind of, it's all to do with power, isn't it, you know, in terms of like, you know, like, pharmaceutical companies have got a lot of power certain professional bodies have got a lot of power there's all these difficult power dynamics occurring um and you know we're also as well there's a group of people who are advocating and communicating at the moment in the area of electroconvulsive therapy um and you know large piece of research with uh, professor john reed and someone over in uh, harvard as well Irving, someone, I can't remember his surname. Um, again, their, their research has shown actually the ECT. Uh, well, I think they did like a big meta-analysis um, saying that, you know, ECT is no more effective than placebo. And actually in some people, ECT is causing brain damage. Um, so there's a big kind of, that's quite topical in sort of the area of mental health at the moment. Yeah. And again, I suppose the ECT would come under the banner of medical model mental health care. And you get people who are kind of very self-invested and being sort of very defensive. And, and I would say, well, listen, it's, let's put our own kind of personal beliefs and own investments and let's not self-protect. And that's actually, remember, what's good for the person, yeah. you know. You know, some, sometimes, you know, people will belittle, you know, things like, oh, well, actually, you know, um, exercise and use of green space is good for mental health. And um, you know, no one's saying that that alone is gonna, you know, gonna help someone recover, but actually aspects like that, yeah. use of sort of green space are really good for mental health. All different elements should be taken into account, you know, diet, yeah. exercise, not just the psychological stuff that we, you know, that, that we work, with with people it's not just that's why i think it's we shouldn't just get too stuck on right well we've got to the rct said this and we've got to do just that and that that only you know everyone's different I mean, aren't they 100 I, I, I think that's a wonderful place to to finish it is that it's not a one-size-fits-all whether you're a psychotherapist yeah. or a clinical psychologist or a psychoanalyst or a, it, it, you know we're all as long as we're focusing on the person in front of us in that moment and giving them, you know, a, a non-judgmental safe space to explore whatever's going on. We're all unique. 
And not yeah. only am I unique, but I'm different on a Monday to a Tuesday. On a Tuesday morning, I feel different to what I do on a Tuesday night. And it's... Moods can change hour to hour. Minute to minute, if you're going through the menopause, yeah. believe me. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think just maybe to finish on as well, it, in terms of, uh, I remember May, my previous supervisor, said to me once in terms of how people interact with each other, um, she said, and it's, it's very simple, but actually really stuck with me. She said, angry meets angry nice meets nice love it and you've been very nice today thank you <laughs> so have you <laughs> see nice meets nice nice meets <laughs> nice yeah we need to do this again sometime i've thoroughly enjoyed it thank you yeah, so much for being here. yeah no no happy uh thank you for uh providing this space for me and um yeah, we're happy to come on again. But yeah, thank you, Jack. It's been very interesting. Just to finish off, if people want to connect with you, how's the best way for them to do that? Is there a way that people can connect with you or see your... Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I help a lot of aspiring psychologists on LinkedIn. Uh, right. Some on there is Dr. Damien Wild. Um, Damien is spelled I-A-N. Yeah. Um, everyone always spells it wrong. Wild is W-I-L-D-E. And... There's been a lot of, uh, been doing a lot of work on there just the last few days around. I put out an article about um, how best to go about and write your uh, doctoring clinical psychology application form and how to prepare for interview. I just put that out there and suddenly it's kind of gone a bit wild. <laughs> Pardon the pun, lots, lots of connection requests and lots of messages. And um, so I do like to help you know, aspiring psychologists and others in terms of on their journey. So there's them also on Twitter, which is at Dr. DJ Wild. So yeah, Wild with an A. Yeah. Um, so. I'll put the links in the show notes for the podcast so that people can just click on it and, and away you go. Yeah, so some, sometimes people with, you know, Dr. DJ Wild, because the, the middle name's Joseph, sometimes people are think I'm a world famous DJ. You should be. You should be. <laughs> Do a bit of rapping. <laughs> Bring in the tracks to the masses, yeah. Right. I'll catch up with you very soon. Thank you so much, Damien. I thoroughly enjoyed it. All right. Cheers, Jackie. Take care. Thanks. Right. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Living Life Being Human podcast. Please follow on Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. And if you got value from this episode, please share it so that others can get value from it too. You can connect with me on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Jackie Jones Coaching. Or you can visit my website, jackiejones.co.uk and click on the free resources tab at the top of the page for all my free and paid support. Thanks for listening.